electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. That's where we begin. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center. This hour, does the market have an Apple problem? The stock is falling again this hour after an influential analyst just said iPhone shipments could be much worse than expected. We'll debate that with the investment committee, discuss what it means to the markets and your money. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Rob Seachin, Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, also with us on set today to cover that Apple story, CNBC technology correspondent Steve Kovac. Let's check the markets. Uh, we have come off the the lower levels of the session. You see here, Dow's only down by about 93. S&P's down a third of 1%. Uh, NASDAQ, a lot of the focus there for uh, obvious reasons is below 11,010,989. Uh, it's a loss of one half of 1%. But let's get to this Apple uh, issue because these headlines moved uh, a short time ago with the big question, are these supply problems going to be much worse than expected? So Kovac is here. Uh, TFI International Securities, okay? Widely followed analyst there says, Shipments will be 15 to 20 million units less than expected with significant downside risks. We're talking about the 14 and the 14 Pro. We've gotten headlines like pro this. Pro and the Pro Max. <clears throat> and the Pro Max, thank you. Yeah. So w- what do we know about this? I mean, TFI International Securities. Well, he's independent now, actually. He's formerly. The, but yes. Oh, formerly. So, yes. Yeah, so okay. Ming-Chin Kuo. He, formerly known as. He is the killer Apple analyst. He's really good at or probably the best, in my opinion. I always pay attention to what he says because he predicts what Apple's going to do like a year in advance before they okay, actually so do it. Okay, so this is legit. When, so when, he's when plugged this analyst in. says it, he's plugged in. Yes. What do we make of this? Especially to the supply chain. He's based in Taiwan. So what do we make of it? His, his, his forecasts are much lower. I'm reading the entire Medium post that he posted on this right now. He's predicting 70 to 75 million total handsets. Now, keep in mind, when this quarter started, Scott, most analysts were predicting 90 million handsets for Apple, which would have been flat. But they're counting on these pros kind of making up for the revenue because the pros are actually in higher demand than the regular 14. So they have that higher selling price. And that's what people were really banking on and Apple was banking on to meet its revenue growth targets for the quarter. Now, if this is true and it's, you know, way below that 90 million, plus you can't just walk into a store and get an iPhone. You can't get one in time for Christmas even. So it looks like he's also saying he doesn't think it'll go into January. The demand, you know, if people can't get in time for Christmas, they're not going to try it in January, which would be interesting and unique for the Apple customer. Sounds surprising to somebody like you who covers this company closer than anybody else. Well, not surprising in the context of what we saw coming, those pictures we saw coming out of China last week. We don't, we still don't really know the full impact of those protests yet, right? We know that it's halted production. We know the initial shutdown slowed things down and Apple had to give that warning several weeks ago. And then we had these protests, which apparently are making things worse. Now, look, I've been asking Apple every day about this. 
what's the latest, what's the latest, what's the latest. We haven't heard anything from Apple since last Wednesday evening when they said, look, we got people on the ground in Foxconn. We're monitoring the situation, but no update to its statement uh, a few weeks ago when they said, look, the iPhone, we're going to sell fewer of these phones than we thought. That's all they've said so far. Maybe they haven't said much because they just don't know. I mean, it yes. sounds like it's so fluid right. with everything that, you know, you get these kinds of forecasts. They're not exactly sure what the numbers are. But Josh Barclays today is kind of in line with what we're hearing from Kovac in this new report from this influential analyst. They expect 15 million uh, shortfall. Uh, increasingly a risk for downside to 20 million shortfall. So we're talking about similar numbers, uh, at least on the headline. But as you heard Steve say, you know, under the surface, it sounds potentially much worse. I guess my question for you would be, well, here are two questions. The first is Apple has been very deliberately trying to downplay the meaningfulness of how many phones they're selling in any particular quarter. They've done that for years now. They've done that for years now. Whether or not we all, as as the Wall Street community, decide to go along for that with that is a different question. But uh, if that's assuming that's the case and Apple can steer the conversation toward, look, we will eventually sell these units, just might not get sold in December, maybe January, February. How much impact historically has something like that really had on the stock? I would argue not much. Number two, how much are we already discounting this? Apple is underperforming the S&P 500, down 18% versus 16%. Historically, it doesn't do that in a bad tape. Apple's usually one of those names that holds it better. So aren't we already pricing in some of this volatility in shipments uh, when we look at where the stock is, yeah, and we, and we saw that move yesterday, right? When it was down two and a half percent, what's it down now? About one and a half percent. So yeah. it might already be be priced in now. So when we get these results, what at the end of January, it won't be as much of a surprise potentially. I, th- I think that's historically been like the right right. Case, so so um, what do we do with this, Steph? <clears throat> There's also a note from Wolf Research today on, on the technicals, which suggests that Apple looks poised to revisit the key 135 support level. I bring all this up because we're having conversations every day about where's this rally, right? Where's the end of the year rally that you you keep hearing predictions about? Oh, it's going to arrive. Seasonality. Don't worry about it. Santa Claus is going to show up. Um, If Apple does test some technical levels around 135, if it, you know, even breaches that level, Where's that rally going? Yeah, I mean, we can slosh around for a bit, right? We, we've been in a trading range all year long. Well, I'm Apple, talking about for the last, like, five weeks of the year. We're going to well, slosh around I, more? I still think we could kind of trend higher, but I don't see new highs by any means. So it's like 4,200 on the upside, maybe 39 on the downside. I think we tra- trade in a range. New but, highs? What do you think? I, I wasn't talking about going to 4,800 okay. stuff in the next five weeks. I, I'm, and I'm saying trading <laughs> range. We could rally between now Uh-oh. and the end of the year, but it's probably capped at about 4,200 on the upside and on the downside is about 3,900. And that's because of this whole inflation problem and Fed problem. So that's not going away anytime soon. And yeah, I was very encouraged, by the way, of the Case-Shiller numbers today, falling for the third, home prices, falling for the third consecutive month. That's really good news. And CPIs and PPIs are rolling over, certainly. But inflation on an absolute basis remains very, very high. So that's why I think we're going to be in a trading range. Now, to Apple, it's 7% of the S&P 500. I'm 1% weighted in this name in one portfolio out of three that I run. And I haven't been excited about Apple because they have issues. It's not just China, though, Steve, right? I mean, this is a, this is a timing issue. This is a supply issue versus a demand issue. Right. We know there is demand, so I think people will look through it. What I have a problem with is it's a stay-at-home beneficiary. Oh, you took right? the words out of my mouth. Right? I was just going to say the services business yes. is struggling, too, during yes. this fall in gaming. And they've said this as much. A fall in advertising, which is a huge growth area within the App Store. So the revenue in their services is at equal 
equally at risk as what we're seeing right. with the iPhone, of course. And iPads and Macs yep. also as well. well so Macs, the they already thing. warned, are going to drop like crazy, too. Right. They right. already said that. So that's why. And then you have on top of it, 80% of the sell side have buys on this thing. Right. That's a lot of support, right? And so I just don't think there's a lot to a lot of reasons to own it into the end of the year. I'd much rather own a lot of other, and I'm underweight technology, by the way, but I'd much rather own other technology names, and I know we're going to talk about a few of them later in the show. I just, I don't think this is really very compelling, and it's outperformed, excuse, yeah, it's outperformed every fang other than Microsoft. Judge, I just want to point out, Apple is a bigger problem for the index fund than it is for most investors and than it is for most portfolios. Um, this is a name, or, or, or just let's take the S&P in general. I mentioned down 16% on the year. Then you take a look at the RSP. This is the equal weight S&P 500 ETF. This is down 9.6%. Imagine that. As hard as this year has been, the equal weighted S&P is down less than 10%. There are a lot of stocks that just don't care about Whatever is going on in China with Apple, whatever is going on in, in ad spending with Meta, these stocks are just not that important to most people's portfolios, mm-hmm. especially not as important as they were. Look at the top performing factors year to date. You might be surprised. You might not. It's value and yield. Value is down three and a half percent on the year. I'd call it flat. Yield is down four percent. Look at what's not working. Quality and growth. What is Apple the poster child of? quality and growth. And every it's just out of favor, it. but everything else, people are fine no, away a, from this. But, but the problem is, Josh, it's 7% of the S&P 500, and every PM on the planet owns it. Yo, not your problem. Not my, not, what's up? I, I'll buy and it. I, under, it. I mean, it. I got it. I got it. But if you get it wrong... And, it, it and, the, and the stock rallies from here for whatever reason, and you're underweight, it can really hurt your performance. So just from a portfolio management construction point of view. Let me just lastly from, from you, Mr. Kovac, before I let you go, um, this risk uh, app store related to this new fight now with, with <laughs> Musk, right? Um, not surprisingly, obviously, some Republicans in Congress have grabbed onto those comments. Ron DeSantis just a few minutes ago. Uh, right. I saw that. I, I saw that as well. Um, what, what's the potential fallout here? A lot, noi- lot of noise. Just, you know, we got Epic noise. Games, yeah. um, Spotify. What, what is the chance that, you know, Musk himself becomes this conduit for others and a lot of others to join in that fight? And that, may, that maybe changes the, the calculus well, there. Well, the fight's been going on for years, Scott. I mean, this, this Epic thing and the, the Spotify complaints, I've been covering... Apple on the app store, these app review process for like seven or eight years now. So these complaints are not new. Are they becoming more vocal? Are companies bigger now and having more of a voice? Absolutely. But it's not new. And just because Elon Musk dips his toe into the battle doesn't necessarily mean it's going to move the needle. So it's they not a tipping point. They can't. How can they move the needle? Because if they if, if more companies sign on with Elon Musk's vision and they just decide to stop paying this 30 percent fee or use their own payment system. All right. Apple will be gladly boot them out of the App Store like they did to Fortnite. Gladly, because they're breaking their contract. And they already have a court case that they've won that's under appeal now, of course. But they already have a court case that they won as proof that, hey, we're in the right. We have this contract with these developers. Whether you agree it's fair or not or they're monopolistic or not, they have the contract and the agreement with all these developers. And they'll happily kick them off if they don't obey by that contract. Sure. My only point is that kicking off, uh, you know, uh, a, a XYZ company is not going to be the same politically at this moment oh, sure. than trying to oh. do something against Twitter. Then, then they're getting, that's my yeah, point. That that's, yes. uh, invites uh, another storm. Uh, I appreciate it very much. You Steve Kovac is there. Um, all right, Shannon. So one of the questions we wanted to ask you guys today is whether you think tech has bottomed. Uh, it's hard to make a statement, yes, if 
Apple is going to continue to go lower and test some key levels and whether 135 is it or not. I'm not the one to to say, but how would you address that issue? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got two two problems here and and whether or not you um, sort of loop, even though Amazon's technically discretionary, really a tech stock, I think, in our world when we think about has tech bottomed. And so you've got two problems. You've got the China problem for Apple, which is both a demand problem and a supply problem, to Josh's point. And then you have the problem with Amazon. Um, and you have a problem where there was significant pull forward of hiring, significant pull forward of demand. Um, those two stocks are, are, are particularly problematic if we think about whether tech is bottomed. I would say The thing about tech bottoming is that it's certainly going to bottom before yields peak and before the dollar peaks. And so um, and I and I don't think that we've probably seen peak yields just yet. Um, We may have seen them close to peak. uh, But I think we still have an opportunity in January and February to see um, yields shoot up a little bit more, particularly if we come into the year. We're seeing some overhang from China protests. Um, There could be some dollar strength out of that. And if and if we hear, you know, hawkish Fed tone um, from Powell tomorrow, then there is certainly an opportunity opportunity for tech to, to languish a little bit here. What I would say, my caution to that is that trying to say whether tech is bottom today or tech is going to bottom in February, I'm not saying that tech is going to bottom in September of next year. And so if you're thinking about the second half of 2023 and into 2024, when we're in a slower growth environment, where we're probably past peak yields and frankly, probably past peak dollar in terms of strengthening, whether it just stabilizes or weakens, that's, that's for another time. Um, I think that you need to think about how do you want to be positioned in the second half of next year? Um, and are there names, to Steph's point, that are outside of those top three or four names in technology that you want to make sure you have some diversified exposure to? So has it bottomed? Probably not. But don't wait until yields are at their peak because you would have already missed the bottom attack at that point. It can be hard for uh, people to get their arms around. Well, it's not going to bottom until the second half of next year or, or not going to be a great buying opportunity until the second half of next year. But just go ahead and do it now because it's no, too hard I'm to, time, saying, to time everything. I'm saying, well, I'm saying like eight, if you want to talk about the next eight weeks, Scott, then, yeah, I mean, it probably hasn't bottomed. If you're talking about building a portfolio for the next five to 10 years, um, some of these tech stocks, even at the, the higher multiples to the market than they are now, are looking very attractive. I mean, I think that if you have a technology allocation and you're well underweight, then in the first quarter of next year, you should by you start to be adding to that technology exposure. I continue to believe, and we continue to believe at SVB, that we are looking at an environment where we're going back to slower growth and we're going to reset our cost expectations and technology is going to continue to be an important driver for productivity and efficiency in 20, late 23, okay. 24, 25. So, So, Rob, uh, on that note, um, but Shannon makes a good point. You know, a lot of these stocks are down a lot this year. Amazon, 45 percent, Alphabet, 35, Microsoft, 29, Meta, 67, NVIDIA, 47 and Apple, 20. Um, For the not 10 minute investor, are are those declines enough to get you interested or suggest that investors should get interested in the names here, even if they haven't technically bottomed in your point of view? Well, these have been darlings, right? Most investors have owned them for a very long time. I mean, I would describe us as being neutral. Some of these names like Apple are core long-term holdings for us, but we're not adding to them. The reason we're not adding to them is price-based. It's positioning-based. It's rates-based. There's still this hope trade out there from a positioning perspective that everybody wants to believe that what worked before is going to work again. 
Well, let's remember when Apple worked back in 2016, it traded a low of a 40% discount to the market. And today it trades at a 30% premium and its five-year average is just 3%. So when you think about tech in general, you own it long-term, no question, but you gotta be mindful of price and you have to watch real yields. And if real yields continue to march higher, Tech valuations are just still way too expensive. Real yields are 1.4%. They've stalled there a little bit, but they're climbing. And the tech sector still trades at a 22% premium to the market. So while we're going to hold through this, we're not adding to it. Um, if we get some irrational bumps, I think we're going to take some risk off the table in some of these names because I think there's still a very significant valuation headwind to these names. Remember, uh, quality has not worked. Quality at a reasonable price has. These are not reasonably priced stocks right now. So given the gains that we have, Scott, we can't afford to sell them. It would be punitive to our investor community. But this is not where we've been getting our performance, and it's not where we expect to get our performance in the very near term. I mean, that's a strong statement. These are not reasonably priced stocks. They, they've come down that much and they're still not reasonably priced the, how much more of a valuation correction do you see for for some of these well i think it all depends we're in the we're somewhat in the fed's hands we're somewhat in the hands of uh what's happening in china and i just think it's too early so i think there's going to be more valuation correction in some of these. Again, we're neutral. We're not negative. But when you're managing portfolios, you have to decide where you tilt to overweights and where you're underweights. Our overweights are in energy and healthcare. That has served us incredibly well. We're starting to get interested in industrials. But tech is just not the prettiest girl at the dance anymore. Yeah. The issue, Steph, which, you know, Rob mentioned, you alluded to it, too, is this Powell speech tomorrow. Mm. Um, what is his last public appearance, remarks, commentary, whatever you want to call it, uh, before the meeting, because the blackout period starts on Saturday. Thursday, Friday, he's not going to have anything on, on the schedule. Thank goodness. Um, we, well, we know he's going to be hawkish, yeah. right? There's, not, there's no surprise. I mean, is the risk that he's more hawkish than we think he might be already? Well, it's possible, but he is going to remain hawkish. And the problem is, is that rates are going to remain high and they're going to stay high for a very long time. I cited CPI, PPI. What, let's watch the core PCE deflator on Thursday. That's supposed to come in at about 4.6%. It'll be down from the prior report, but it's still very elevated. And we know that the Fed, their goal in core PCE deflator mm -hmm. is 2%. So that's why rates have to stay higher for longer. They are having an impact on the housing market, for sure. We are going to see a slowdown in the economy, for sure. I am very encouraged, though, that the dollar, and Shannon alluded to this, the dollar has been weak. Input costs are coming down for companies. Supply chains are starting to ease as well. And a, a lot of companies have put in prices, pricing power over the last year, year and a half. So. I'm kind of feeling a little bit better about the earnings recession mm -hmm. thought for 2023. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Fed is all of a sudden going to pause or pivot. I think we have to wait until February or March. OK, so that brings up, you know, problem number one for for the market potentially and trying to get a, a rally between now and the end of the year is higher for longer. Right. That the kind of right. message that Powell might deliver himself uh, uh, tomorrow. And the other problem, Josh, is that the market's just rallied a lot already. Mm. 
So it's not like we, you know, we're sitting at this bottom and we're hoping for this powerful rally into the end of the year. You already have an S&P that's up 13 percent from the mid-October low, a Dow that's already up 17 and a half percent, a Russell that's already up 12 percent. So how much more can you really get out of something that was already pretty darn good? But we've had a huge correction in valuations and not just in tech across the board. And that's look, you could put somebody on the air who's like a, a perma bear or a doom person who sells like a macro newsletter. And they will say we haven't yet begun to feel the full effects of one of the fastest tightening cycles in history. And that person would be absolutely right in pointing that out. You could also take somebody who's an asset gatherer and will only ever say the most constructive thing they, they can think of. And they will say, hey, by the way, if I would have told you in January that we were, we were about to have 400 basis points worth of tightening this year, you would have told me the S&P would be cut in half. And look where we are now. The Dow down 8 percent. That's all you got. So there is a story of resilience. There is also a story of, hey, it might be too early to celebrate. And I think that stocks are appropriately uh, right in the middle of that tug of war. We're not taking off to the upside. You have some bounces off the lows. You have value stocks outperforming. But you don't have a bonanza just because we think we're closer to the end than the beginning of the Fed tightening. We're all very much in wait and see. One underappreciated variable that we haven't gotten to yet. Just want to mention the dollar. Um, It is possible that the entirety of the dollar strength versus the basket simply came from interest rate uh, uh, from interest rate differential versus the rest of the world. That might be the whole story. Mm. It might have nothing to do with Biden's policies or the U.S. is a stronger. Throw all that stuff out, because if we're toward the end of the rate hikes and the dollar is already failing to make a new high and right now sitting right at that 200 day moving average, I might add. That's an important part of the story, too. That has been one of the most important signals for stocks all year. Last thing, and I I have to get this out. We told you what the playbook was all year. It has not let you down. Every single time the VIX has gotten to 20, you had to look at your portfolio and say, you know what, I'm taking something off. This 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 is too easy. That happened five times this year. This is the fifth time on Friday. I saw the VIX, half day, Thanksgiving. Nobody's really paying attention, low volume. The VIX got down to like 20.25. And what do you know? Monday was, was uh, blood red. Today is no, not, not so great. That has served you very well if you've used that lack of volatility as your governor. Am I too long? Am I, am I, am I too eager for the upside? That is exactly the moment. And to the downside, again, we get a little bit of volatility. We get up into those upper 20s. I don't care how bearish you are. Go find something to buy. If you stick with that playbook until it breaks, I think you're in much better shape than getting really excited every time the market uh, bounces. All right. Uh, that's a good note to, uh, to stop there. Let's take a quick break. When we come back in a big week, it is a big week for cloud stocks. We have earnings from Crowdst- uh, CrowdStrike, Workday. Look what they did to you, Judge. They in, did. In the, in they did. CrowdStrike. That's all right. Uh, Those are on deck. (laughs) We know what we mean. We're back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. 
If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back. Uh, let's do one of our calls of the day. Boeing reiterated overweight uh, Steph at Morgan Stanley. They asked the question, OK, is it time to be a bull or bear? Um, it's an interesting call that they make. Kramer says it's a call to buy. I like it. What do you think? 213 is a price target. I own it. So I but like is it time? I mean, are you feel you feel like yeah. a bull or you feel like a bear right now? I think 2023 should be pretty good for Boeing. Right. They had their analyst day uh, a month ago and they reiterated that their 737 max, they're going to deliver 40 a, a month in the second half of 2023. That's a nice catalyst. 787, they're going to produce 70 to 80 for the year. Uh, that's a huge tailwind for free cash flow. They reiterated 5 billion in free cash flow to get eventually to 10 billion by 2025. The stock trades on free cash flow. So I think the 2023 story is it should be a pretty good one for them. Okay, Um, let me just jump around. I'm going to go to another story that I thought was interesting. Shake Shack, Josh, there's an industry conference today. Uh, Executives say they're experiencing a slowdown in sales among lower income consumers. Um, The stock is up uh, actually today, despite those comments. But what's your view here of Shake Shack? Uh, In this kind of environment that we're in. Listen, this is a $2 billion market cap for what, in my opinion, is one of the highest quality concepts in the entire sector. Probably has better global growth prospects than 99% of of its competitors. The specific comments that uh, Randy Garuti, the CEO, made today, uh, I think you're going to see this everywhere. There comes a point where... Uh, all of the all of the uh, excess cash in people's bank accounts from from stimulus checks uh, gets worked through. You start to see we've we've seen credit card balances uh, jump 15 percent year over year in Q3. Expect that to continue. People just get tapped out at a certain point. I actually think that augurs well for some of the issues that we're having with the labor force and people coming back to work. They're going to have to eventually. Um, but people are struggling right now. Inflation is, is, is hurting people. And, you know, I think Shake Shack and, and companies of its ilk are going to have an opportunity, though, to do some discounting to keep those customers coming in because uh, not only do I think labor, the labor uh, force issues will become easier, but raw materials, uh, chicken prices are down. You know, they're going to get some relief on the cost side so that they don't have to be doing what they've all been doing on the price side, which is continuously hiking. And obviously, all of this is by demand. This is what uh, this is what uh, monetary policy is trying to accomplish. It's happening in slow motion. But I think those comments today are indicative that it is happening. OK, uh, coming up, the state of venture capital on the back of FTX's collapse plus pro week continuing today. We have a special hour-long interview with Fundstrat's Tom Lee. He is answering your questions as well at cnbc.com slash protalks. It starts at 3 p.m. Eastern. Do not miss that. In fact, you can participate if you uh, follow those instructions. Half time is back right after this.
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back on the Halftime Report. Uh, as the collapse of FTX and a frozen IPO market are putting venture capital under a lot of pressure, Deirdre Bosa is at a major VC summit in Half Moon Bay, California. D. Well, it's been a challenging landscape, certainly. And as we approach your NVCs, they will have to review valuations. And that is a daunting task in the current environment where public comps have, of course, come down so much. Private comps typically lag that. Here at the Wonderco Summit, I spoke to founding partners Sujay Jaswa and Jeffrey Katzenberg about how they're preparing for the year ahead. Jaswa summed up 2023 in one word, nervous. He anticipates that the IPO window will remain challenging until at least the second half of 2023. I also asked him about the fallout from FTX and whether that would make them and other VCs question their crypto and Web3 investments and ambitions. Wonderco dabbled in the space with investments in Dapper and OpenSea, but ultimately they say that they approach investments from a consumer standpoint and ask, is a product better, faster, easier, or cheaper in crypto? They said that they have just not seen a lot of that. Now, while the outlook for the industry is uncertain going into next year, there's also a lot of optimism here in Half Moon Bay. Attendees from VCs to LPs, CEOs, founders, they are excited to be here in person post-pandemic and share strategies on how to look for opportunities as many of them here and beyond will remind you, in the Bay Area especially, some of the most disruptive companies, Scott, are created during these challenging times. Yeah, but I have to believe that VCs in general um, are going to be way more discerning in where they're putting their money and at what valuations they're doing so. Absolutely. And I think that there's sort of two buckets here, two major buckets, if I were to simplify. There's the late stage investors, the crossover funds like SoftBank and Tiger Global, who have really struggled in terms of their returns this year. They get in later to companies like Klarna, like FTX, like others when they're already marked up so much. But then you have some of the more traditional names here like Sequoia, Andreessen, Horowitz, um, Wonderco as well, that get in at the much earlier stages. So yes, discerning. But if you are an earlier stage, say a seed investor, um, there is opportunity here because you are getting companies perhaps at a discount given that backdrop. Yeah. All right, Dee. Thank you. That's Deirdre Bosa joining us here on The Half. Up next, Mike Santoli is with us for his Midday Word. We're back after this. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli with us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. All right. Uh, seems like we're waiting around for Powell, and that's going to be the whole game in town. Yes. Uh, everyone knows what we're waiting for. Yes, Powell, along with the, the PCA infl- PCE inflation numbers this week, the jobs numbers, and mostly, you know, the market is kind of uh, flattish and neutral. Without Apple, uh, you know, the equal-weighted S&P is up. A couple of other themes. I mean, Financial conditions have mostly stopped easing uh, very recently, and so the S&P has gone sideways. So far, holding the pop that we got in the last CPI number, so November 10th, but barely. So I think nothing much has changed in terms of overall trend stuff. 
Credit market's interesting. They're not really giving you reason to be worried. And Amazon's out there trying to sell $7 billion worth of bonds today. Market seems like it's going to be receptive to it. So that's sort of an absence of a negative, if not an outright positive. Even, uh, you know, a negative Apple headline from, you know, an influential and trusted analyst is not exactly causing that much damage. Sure, the stock's down 2%, um, but it's not a, you know, a, a horrible looking story in the market as a result of it. No, I wouldn't say. Uh, I mean, you have a little bit of movement down in sympathy with some of the other mega cap uh, tech names. Microsoft was weaker. Uh, but I do think what's happening with Apple, too, is not so much people trying to price in some precise number of iPhone sales for the current quarter. It's also about you know, some of that kind of haven pre premium coming out of the stock had massive outperformance over the last year over tech, over the Nasdaq. So I think that's you know part of the issue as well. Okay. I'll see you in a bit. That's Mike Santoli yep. at the Stock Exchange. Coming up here, fears about a recession, putting the spotlight on dividend stocks again. The committee weighing in on that group, giving us their favorite picks. We'll do it next. All right. If you think we're going into a recession next year, Wolf Research has a new note on outperforming in a downturn. They say to focus on the so-called dividend aristocrats, companies with a long track record of consistently increasing their dividends because this group of stocks is generally outperformed heading into and out of recessions. All right. So they got 10 names. Steph, I'm starting with you. Okay. Caterpillar's on their list. 2% yield, year-to-date total return of 15%. I mean, I like Caterpillar, but I'm not buying it for its yield. I'm, I'm buying it for the energy recovery, infrastructure, exposure, uh, and valuation at 16 times. They've done a really good job in terms of pricing power, and so they've seen better margins this year, and I think that's going to continue. So I like it, but I'm not buying it for the dividend. I, that's a bonus to me. Okay. McDonald's, 2.2% yield seats, year-to-date total return of 4%. Yeah, listen, this is a stock that we own, but it's getting expensive. I don't know that that's a place you can hide uh, in this market. I prefer names like EOG, Gilead, Jeffries as kind of the, the picks that I would be focused on right now, which we also own. Okay. Uh, Shan, Depot, as in Home Depot, 2.4% yield, <laughs> total return down 22%. Yeah, um, mortgage rates, uh, mortgage rates, mortgage rates. Uh, but I still think housing adjacent stocks make a lot of sense here. And Home Depot is one of, of the few big box retailers we have. We also have Costco, um, Best Buy. And so I think that if you're looking for uh, steady cash flow, Home Depot certainly provides that. And I do think that the stock will likely rebound uh, in the back half of next year as mortgage rates stabilize. Next era energy, Josh, 2% yield year to date total return down 9%. Yeah, so this is a, a utility that's got a clean energy kicker, throwing off a lot of cash. They own Florida Power and Light, and then they're engaged in all these uh, large-scale, industrial-scale, uh, clean energy projects all over the United States. Very profitable. I like this name. Okay. Uh, to read the article, by the way, on dividend aristocrats and many more, go to cnbc.com pro. We'll do final trades next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern time. We have a special show. Besides the CrowdStrike and Workday earnings I told you about, Jake Wood is going to be with us today, the former Marine sniper, 
gave a lot to this country. Now he is giving back in a lot of other ways. He is the founder and chairman of Team Rubicon. He is the founder and CEO of Groundswell. On this Giving Tuesday, we're going to talk to him. He is super impressive, and I hope you will join us for that conversation. Uh, look forward to seeing all y'all at 4 o'clock. All right. We want to highlight as well, Josh Brown is featured in this cover story for this month's Fortune magazine, the best financial strategies for surviving a recession in 2023 from three top advisors. Congratulations nice. to you. Thank you. Congrats. Look how handsome I look there. Like Believe the video, not. too. Yeah. Uh, give us a little tease of what you told people. Well, the, the premise was, and, and Savita Subramanian was, was a part of it, who's been on our show a lot as mm-hmm. well. The premise was, how do you survive 2023 given the different directions things can go? What do you do specifically with your portfolio? And I think I had a lot of uh, nuggets of, of uh, wisdom and maybe some off-the-cuff remarks that I wish they didn't print, but they did anyway. So, But it's, <laughs> it's a great issue. Look for it on newsstands now. It's got a Do we need to be concerned about anything you said? No, nothing. No, come on. Come on. All right. No, it's a, it's a great honor it's for not, you to be Let's not get carried away. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, that's Josh Brown. So make sure you check check that out. Give us a final trade. You obviously have some time, too. We have a couple minutes left. Well, we talked about dividend aristocrats. I want to mention my favorite, which is A.O. Smith. This company's origins are shortly after the Civil War, believe it or not. They make boilers, home heaters, uh, water filters. 70% of what they sell is replacement only. So it's very defensive. Stock's down 29% this year, mm-hmm. uh, paying a 2% yield. This is the 28th consecutive year they've raised that yield. The dividend has grown at a compound rate of 17%. It's outperformed the S&P over the last 10, 20 years. I think it'll continue to. This is a very undervalued name, in my opinion. All right, Shan. Uh, TradeWeb, TW, we bought this a few weeks ago. Uh, bonds are back, and this stock is going to benefit from a shift to more electronic fixed income trading, particularly because you know you can trade government bonds very efficiently. Um, and so this is a, a uh, probably a growth area for the next couple of years for a lot of different firms. Rob Seachin. I'd watch Union Pacific. If the negative news around the rail strike picks up and causes weakness, we would add to our position. And remember, this is a company with 50% operating margins, better than most tech companies. And it's likely also one of the reasons why the workers are striking. Yeah. Kramer likes transports, by the way, which he said uh, again this morning. All right, Stephanie Link. Morgan Stanley, we haven't talked about the financials in a really long time. I kind of like that. Uh, they have a diversified revenue mix, wealth management, investment banking. I like what they're doing in M&A. And, of course, they have exposure to rates. Their capital position is extremely strong. They are buying back $20 billion in stock over the next couple of years, and it has a 3.2% dividend yield. Okay. Uh, I wanted to get your comments, too, Josh, before we get out of here on these Chinese ADRs that are ripping again. Um, <laughs> you know, that uh, I guess on the hopes that the China COVID restrictions are going to be eased. As we're also learning, by the way, from the FT, which is reporting that Jack Ma, of course, from Alibaba, uh, is living in Tokyo for the past six months, which is interesting, too. But what do you think about these stocks, which have ripped for a couple of days? I hope the news flow uh, comes in and affirms what these stocks seem to be trading on. Uh, but, I mean, your guess is as good as mine whether or not the Chinese government will back down to protests on the second or third yeah. day. Historically, they haven't done that. All right. I'll see you in overtime. I look forward to that. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
while what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.